We're continuing our series on Psalms. Lucas kicked it off with Psalm 8, which in Psalm 8, uh, as you went through it, you realized how great God is, but one of the great things that God did was he created man. He created us. He created us specifically uh, different than everything else. And as Lucas was leading this sermon, I couldn't help but think about the creation story and how there was a problem in the beginning, right? The earth was formless and it was void, or it was void and it was formless. It was formless and it was void. And so the first three days, God forms everything. He puts the sky together. He puts the heavens together. He puts the land together, puts the water together. And the second three days, or the, yeah, the second set of three days, he ends up filling it. He fills it with animals, beasts. Um, he fills it with trees, shrubbery, light, in the sky, stars, those sort of things. So he answers that question. And all of creation, he fills up everything that he created and he formed, except for one thing. He doesn't fill the earth with one thing. That was man. Man was created different. He created one man. And from there, he created two, a helpmate for him. And they were supposed to glorify God by being obedient and filling the earth themselves as a reflection of worship to who God is. We were created different, and it begs, it begs the question, so what is our purpose? Last week, we went through Psalm 23, and in Psalm 23, we saw that the Lord is our shepherd, and our purpose in life is to follow the shepherd, the good shepherd, that's Jesus Christ, because we know that he will provide for us we know that he will restore us when we need restoring. We know that he will guide us in our paths and the way and the direction that God has for us. And we know that he will protect us. And that life of following the good shepherd is so great. It's as if we are sitting at a banquet. And at that banquet, we have all our fill and everything. We are relaxed. We are enjoying the presence of the host, which is the good shepherd. And in that midst of that hosting of the good shepherd, there are enemies surrounding the table. They have swords drawn. They have bows and arrows. They have crossbows. If they were at the time, I didn't look it up. They might have been. I don't know. And they have slingshots. I know they were there. And they're sitting there, and they're wanting to attack you. Yet you can just enjoy everything because being in the presence of the good shepherd, you have no worries about that at all. They cannot touch you because the Lord is the good shepherd and he's worth following. And that's our purpose, to follow him. We are created for a purpose. We have a purpose to follow him. But it begs the question is, how do we follow him? How do we act out that purpose? Which brings us to Psalm 27. I actually titled this service, the sermon, Conquering Your Fears, or How to Conquer Fears. And the truth is, is that part of following God is releasing those fears and setting them aside. You know, uh, fears can overwhelm us and cause us to either turn back to the Lord or turn away from the Lord. The fears that are great are the ones that cause us to turn back to him quickly. Uh, this past year, um, we had the privilege to be with a lot of pastors that are pastoring all over, well, actually in America and actually out, yeah, all over the world, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, and they're pastoring all over the world. And we got together and we got to talk about some of our fears as pastors, some of our concerns with our church, some of our concerns as just people that uh, are responsible for the care of others as well. 
And as we shared those things, I got to talk to Andrew a little bit, and I asked him, I said, hey, by the way, could you tell me, like, when were you the most afraid? Like, when do you remember that? And he said, well, it wasn't when I was a pastor. It was actually when I was in high school, and I went on a mission trip with my father to Uganda. And Andrew grew up in the church. His dad's a pastor. He went on this mission trip. And before he went, he prayed the prayer. He said, God, I've heard about you all my life. I've seen you and my dad, but I haven't experienced you. I don't know what you're really like. And if you really are real and this really is important to go to places like Uganda and share Jesus Christ, then uh, reveal yourself to me. Let me see you work. Well, when they landed there, they were actually led by a guide through this remote village and they were meeting in this meeting house and sharing with other people. And the guide that was with them said, man, I've got this weird struggle and Andrew, I'd love it if you would come pray with me. And so they stepped outside together. And when they stepped outside together, uh, Andrew said, what's going on? And uh, the man began to talk. And when he talked, Andrew said they started to pray. And when he closed his eyes, he can't explain it, but he just felt like he was being violated. But when he opened his eyes, the man wasn't touching him. Nobody was around. And so as a holy response, he pushes the man with two hands as hard as he can and says, get away from me. And he said the man's face began contorting and moving in different ways. And he ran back into the tent to his dad. And when he ran back into the tent to his dad, he was trying to tell him what was going on. And the guy comes in running after him, grabs him around the shoulder and says, it's too late, he's with us. Well, they have an intervention. And in this intervention, they separate Andrew from this other man. They cast the other man out and they begin praying with Andrew because Andrew is just shook. He experienced fear. And when he experienced that fear, his dad said, listen, you need to get away, you need to pray, and you need to seek God. And so when he did, he began reading Psalm 27. And he said it was just the first few words in Psalm 27 that opened his eyes and gave him a peace and a comfort. And we're going to look at that today. So Psalm 27, how to follow God's purpose. I believe this first section, you have to affirm your faith. Affirming your faith. And we should all do this. Look at the faith that David is affirming. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. He makes multiple statements of faith. One of those statements of faith is that the Lord is the light. The Lord is the light. The light provides guidance. In fact, in scripture, there, if you did a word study on light, you would have a blast going through the Bible, or I would. You might not. You might be bored. But I'm telling you, it is amazing how God interacts with light, uses light, how lights uses an illustration all through there. But let me just tell you a few of the scriptures and what what the Bible says about light specifically. Um, in Micah 7, 8 through 9, and a little bit before that actually, it actually says that light will defeat enemies and bring people that have been captured back into the light. Light provides them guidance. It provides them a way to walk out of darkness. So when it says the Lord is my light, he provides it. When it says the Lord is the light, Obviously, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. 
In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And if you follow Jesus, you will experience it. The, one of the more interesting observations or studies that you can do is you can look at the way light interacts with other cultures and other religions. Every religion around the world recognizing that light is associated with good. Every one of them. Now, they might not like that, but they recognize that light is either an enemy or it's associated with good. And so, whenever you encounter light, you either want it to go away or you want it on you. It's one of those things that gives enlightenment or clear-headed thinking, and you're not distracted by other things that are going on. At this same meeting of pastors, I met this guy named Charlie Colgan. Charlie was a student pastor here at this church. I believe during the time Mike Fisher was a pastor. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's when it was because all I know is that he really liked Mike and he hung out with Mike the whole time. So I just figured they went together. Mike and Charlie were together. And he's a pastor actually in Nacogdoches, Texas, or at least that's what I'm telling you right now. And if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, Charlie. If you're listening to this, I apologize. But Charlie actually, one of the things that he really cared about was sharing Jesus Christ to people that seemed to live in the darkness. And he wanted to help his student ministry be a part of that. And so what he would do is he would take all the students or the kids that would come with them and take them to New Orleans for a little while where they could share Christ and evangelize people on the Jackson Square. And so what happened, if you have been to New Orleans, I used to live about an hour outside of New Orleans during my high school and my first two years of college. And so we used to go down to New Orleans often. And let me just say this, this isn't something that people from New Orleans would disagree with. I've met many of them, I've talked to many of them. New Orleans just feels different. There's a feeling about New Orleans that's just different. And I'm not talking about the humidity. Yes, you can feel New Orleans. When you walk out, you can wipe New Orleans off. You can towel New Orleans off. It's different. But there's almost a competing of spiritual presence there in that land that just feels a little different. If you've ever been to a place that felt oppressive, you would know what I'm talking about. There's just this weird feeling. I've heard this from many people that have gone to Africa, gone to other countries around the world, gone to cities, even walked into stores here in Dallas, and they felt something a little different. Well, Charlie went down with his team, and on Jackson Square, they began sharing Jesus Christ. They shared all the way till 9 o'clock at night when the sun started to go down, and then it was time to leave. And as they were leaving, there were some men that were swinging gold ropes above their heads, and they were in robes, and they walked out all along the places where their team was. And so Charlie, being curious, he said, hey, I'm just curious what y'all are doing. And he said, well, actually, when y'all walked out here, there was this weird light that came on this Jackson Square. And we're just trying to invite back in the darkness because that's what we feel is important. You see, when it says the Lord is the light, he gets rid of the darkness and he provides the clarity. He provides the cleanliness. He provides sight for all those people that are blind. But it doesn't stop there. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The word salvation can mean deliverance. Logically, if you are being delivered from something, it means you were previously captured by something else. And so those people that are captured need guidance to get out of there, and they also need a way to get out of there, and that's the Lord. We actually learned that we're all captured by sin by being born into this world because this sin is everywhere. It's in everyone. And we need the Lord to cleanse us. So, if you are born and you're human, you have been imputed with sin. 
That's what Romans 1 through 3 says. And luckily we get to verse 21 and on because we find out that there is a savior for that. Someone that provides deliverance because he paid the price for sin even though we deserve the price to pay for sin. And instead of receiving the price for sin, which is death, we receive salvation in Jesus Christ, his righteousness, if we believe, like it says in Romans 4. And therefore, we're justified, like it says in Romans 5, so that we can go on and live. So the Lord is the light and the salvation, but there's a third word there. The Lord is also our stronghold. Notice the order. You need guidance. You need a path to get out. You need salvation to be delivered. And then you need to be held in a stronghold. A stronghold is built in such a way that others can't get in. It's impenetrable, especially when the Lord is that. And so he asks the logical question, so why should he be afraid of anyone? Who should he be afraid of? Well, the people that it says that are attacking him are evildoers or enemies or foes. Those people of opposition. But there's a gradual escalation in severity between those people that are against them. Because it starts off with enemies, and then it proceeds on to armies, and then it comes to a full-out war against them. And guess what? The stronghold never fails. This is his statement of faith. And to overcome your fear, to follow your purpose in following the good shepherd, you should practice making statements of faith in your belief. I think every morning we should wake up with that idea of the Lord is my light, my salvation. He is my stronghold. What do I fear, God? I'm so grateful for you because you provided that for me. But I think we don't wake up with that idea very often, actually. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons this led to church attendance in the church actually being low. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but church attendance in America is actually decreasing rapidly. Uh, in fact, there are conferences put on for pastors to attend that are beginning to be sold out of how to deal with a church that's declining, that doesn't have as many members as it used to have, doesn't have as many servants as it used to have. Did you know people that are confessing believers in Jesus Christ between the ages of 18 and 30 regularly don't attend church? 75% of confessing believers, people that make the profession of faith in Jesus Christ from 18 to 30 don't attend church. They come back after they have kids, but they don't see attending church and being part of a community and a body together worshiping the Lord as being significant towards their faith. But they want their kids raised in it. That's strange that we have such a low view of church. Because there's something that happens here. We have... a we have misconstrued what church is. We think church is about us receiving something as a culture versus us giving worship to someone. The reason we are here in this church this morning isn't necessarily to be fed, but it's to give God the praise and the adoration that he's due. Let me say that again. The reason we are here as a church is to give God the praise and adoration he is due. My dad once told me this. There are two reasons to go to church. Number one, you need the church. Number two, because the church needs you. You know, we intentionally 
and young adults do not have a worship service for fear that people will come on Thursday night and say, I've already been to church, so I don't have to come Sunday morning. There is something different that happens in this room because every single individual in the world is welcome to come here. There is no one that can be excluded here. One of the reasons I wanted to become a pastor versus continue working in parachurch ministry or ministries that were not in the church was because I was regularly meeting individuals that I couldn't invite to it. Because my experience in parachurch ministry is that parachurch ministry actually only can invite people in a certain demographic, which is good because it's for that targeted population. But when I met other people outside of that demographic, I had invited them to the church. And I could not wrap my mind around the idea that I would work in a place where I couldn't invite every single person to hear about Jesus Christ. Everybody is welcome here. And the truth is, is if you choose not to come here, it's fairly selfish. Because either you need the church or church needs you. There are many people here that are hurting. They're on the last leg. We do not know what they're going through, but they need that word of encouragement. They need that spiritual connection. They need someone that does have some sort of way to help them and guide them and walk with them, to, to pray with them, to share with them, to give them a hug because they haven't felt, felt physical touch in a long time because possibly their spouse died. We need people to attend church regularly and come because you get to worship the Lord here. And that's what provides people light, salvation, and that stronghold of faith. Um, one time, I worked at another church when I was married uh, to Brooke. And Brooke and I actually started a community group. And in this community group, we had people that, uh, I think we had five couples in there. And a new couple came about halfway through the year, and we invited them into our group. They were a little different, to be honest with you. I don't think many people liked them, which was, hey, it happens sometimes. It was their turn to host people at their house. And so Brooke and I get in the car, and we drive to her house, and as we pull up, she turned to me. She actually said, I don't really want to be here. Um... And to be honest with you, I didn't want to be there either, but I was the paid staff person, so I knew I had to be. And so I don't know what I said, but it probably wasn't with the most sincere heart. We, you know, we really should go in. So we went in, we shared a meal with them. We were the only couple that showed up that night. And as we shared that meal with them, we actually found out uh, the wife is a believer in Jesus, but her husband is not. And he is not a believer and he said one of the reasons he's not is because he's not so sure Jesus did what he did because he can't see it in other people's lives. We had a long conversation about faith and what that meant. My wife was just over there praying in her mind. It was pretty amazing. When we got back in the car, we had that, you know, that holy moment of um, confession or, or just, you know, where, where we're just apologize to the Lord for our bad attitudes, which consisted of us calling each other bad names within our mind, because how dare we think that we're, God is so small that he can't use us in just a small group night? And how dare we not think somebody else might have needed a friend in Jesus Christ that night? How often do we wake up and think, you know what, this just isn't for me? Here's what's interesting about that. We had never felt that feeling of not wanting to go show up to a house until it was their house. There were multiple other people that didn't show up at their house. 
What if it was more than just our consideration? What if it was the enemy working against us, trying to keep us from going in there and talking about Jesus? Think about this. If something is holy and good that you're invited to, to be a part of, like a church worship service, and you don't feel like going, it's quite possible it's not your feelings, but it's something more. And you possibly should go all the more when you don't feel like it than when you do. Affirm faith. Number two, focused worship. One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter on the sacred tent and set me high upon the rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. This is focused worship. This entire section right here is in the presence of wanting to be in God's presence in the tent. David had a high view of worship to the Lord. In fact, he desired to bring the Ark of the Covenant down to Jerusalem. He did. He celebrated. He wanted to build a temple. God wouldn't let him. And so his son ended up doing that for the Lord. David desired worship. He wrote psalms so that we could sing worship to the Lord. He cared about us coming together and doing this in unison and doing this as a collective voice because God is working in each of us individually. And as we worship the Lord, there's something that happens there and God desires it. Worship meant a lot to David, but it wasn't just the location of worship. It was the interaction with God. It was the presence of God. It had nothing to do with the location. It had everything to do with the presence of God and seeking him because it's in him he experiences salvation. It's in him they experience his shelter as he's in his dwelling. We, we actually learn through scripture that God doesn't care about our spiritual acts of worship that much if we don't have our heart in it, right? Psalm 46 says, sacrifice, David says this, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. That my ears you have pierced means you have made it very clear to me. You have made it unmistakable to me that burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not require. Samuel actually says this to Saul when Saul is struggling with the very same thing and he's worshiping these goats and these other things or, or saving these goats and sheep and different things for worship even though God told him to do something else. And Samuel says, does the Lord really delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord, the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Giving God... Worship means we're giving him the praise he deserves with our life. Romans 12 calls this a sacrifice. Living bodies of sacrifice because Jesus has already given the living body of sacrifice unto death and raised from dead. We're continuing to give him sacrifice with our lives. C.S. Lewis actually struggled with the worship and the praise of God. Um, he actually said this. Why would someone praise God who is going to do what he's going to do anyway? Why would he do that? Who tells a thunderstorm to keep thunderstorming or a stream of water to keep streaming? It's going to do it anyway. 
It seemed off-putting as if God says, what I want most is to be told how great and how good I am. Is God that, is he, is he that insecure that he needs our praise? No, he's not that insecure. C.S. Lewis rectified this actually by looking at a painting when he was in a museum. It was just an inanimate object and he found himself admiring that painting. And he said, this is kind of interesting. That painting deserves my admiration because it's amazing. It's a beautiful painting. But if I give it my admiration, if I give it my praise, if I give it its due look of admiration, it does not cease to be a painting. It does not change shapes. The strokes do not change. The colors do not change. The frames around it do not change. It continues to be the same painting it is because it's good and it's just the way it is. How much more so should you give praise to God? The right response to God is just to praise him for his goodness and his justness, his mercy, his love, because that's who he is. If you don't give him praise, he'll continue to be the same, but the right response isn't to neglect that painting. It's to look on that painting. The right response to God isn't to neglect that God. It's to look on that God and give him praise. When we give him praise, when we worship, as a collective unit, you see something in others as well. Why would we cease to worship God in church and steal that opportunity to see the glory of God from someone else? Every effort should be to come and worship the Lord. Every effort. The suggestion by God to praise him is coming from the external and most wise being, if I can call him that, possible in any realm to a finite individual who has lived a maximum of about 120 years if we're successful. If God makes the suggestion or command, we should do it because he's the most wise and God commands us to give him praise. The third way is sincere prayer. This is the part we read just a minute ago. Hear my voice when I call on the Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in paths that are straight because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foe or false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations." This prayer is a request for response from the Lord. And that response is this. Do not hide your face from me or neglect me. Do not turn me away and into danger. Do not reject me. Do not forsake me. Do not turn me over to my foes so their dreams will come true and they can attack me. You see, these prayer that he's praying right here is not fear of others. It's fear of being out of the presence of the Lord. Um, and he knows that out of the presence of the Lord is where danger happens. Prayer is all about the presence. You know, when we pray, we often long for the request, and it's the reason we're praying this prayer. But God is just enjoying the presence of us. 
And one thing we neglect whenever we talk about prayer is the fact that it's just good to be in God's presence. It's absolutely absurd that an eternal God that's sovereign and can do all things and he's super busy would ask us to spend time talking to him and talking with him. I mean, how can we really change his mind? But he cares about your prayers. Think about this. Jesus himself prayed to God. Jesus. God prayed to God. Do you think Jesus ever lacked anything or needed anything? He just desired the presence of the Father. I mean, think about it. He calmed storms. He told demons to leave. He healed sickness. He helped people rise from the dead. He told life to come back, right? What did he lack? In his temptation in the wilderness by Satan, he actually says, I lack nothing. I can call on legions of angels to help me. But he desired that presence, and he taught us to pray and told us to pray. People who struggle with it logically are a lot like C.S. Lewis. I'm on a C.S. Lewis cake lately, in case you haven't noticed. And this is what C.S. Lewis says about prayer. He, he was writing a letter to his brother, and his brother struggled with, why should you pray if God's going to do what he's going to do anyway? And he said, I suppose the solution lies in pointing out that the efficacy of prayer is that any rate no more of a problem than the efficacy of all human acts. Pretty much saying, why would we... Why would you care about God's sovereignty in prayer if God's sovereign over everything else as well? Why do you even concern yourself with asking for anything in this world right now, right? It's useless to pray because a providence already knows what's best and certainly, and would certainly do it. Then why is it not necessarily useless for the same reason to try to alter the course of events in any way whatsoever? For example, why would you even ask for salt if God is going to do what he's going to do with your meal anyway? Well, the reason we ask for salt is because we want to enjoy the meal. The reason you spend time in prayer is because you want to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. It's not shared with us enough. And then lastly, a hopeful blessing. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord and be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Over and over again, the blessing right there is to wait to wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, persevere in what's going on. You know, the Beatitudes are a great passage in Scripture. Um, but the Beatitudes actually start on this interesting situation where you have to first be poor in spirit. You have to be willing to give up your life so that you can seek God. And you mourn for that time and, and the way you've harmed God. And then you gently turn to God and allow him to shape and move you, which is the next one. And then you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then you are, receive his mercy. You're pure in heart and you become a peacemaker. But it actually ends with this. You're gonna experience persecution. Twice it says that. You're gonna experience persecution. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ in this world, you will experience those people that will persecute you. Now some persecution is extreme, some is minor. But all of it hinders our faith if we do not focus on the Lord. This is a priestly blessing that you would wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, be patient and wait on the Lord because he is your light, he is your deliverer, he is the stronghold. Just wait on the Lord a little longer. What's interesting about this also is for me, this is radical change in my spiritual life after I became a believer. I can remember the moment where blessings became important to me. And we don't hold blessings very high, I think, in American culture 
that much. Uh, we give a benediction at the end of the service, and you might not hear another blessing other than that. But my wife and I actually began praying blessings over our kids, and I think it was started when we volunteered at the church while we were in seminary. When we volunteered at a church in seminary, we started out on the parking team. Brooke and I, we thought, hey, we got four years together to serve together, and then I'm going to get pulled away into all sorts of ministries. Let's just enjoy this time together. Whatever you do, I do. Whatever I do, you do. And I said, what do you want to do? And she said, I want to do parking team. So we volunteered in parking team. We joined a community group. But after we had a child, we had Ellie, our firstborn son, or daughter. She's a daughter. She is a daughter. We had her, and we went with her to child care, and we volunteered in the children's ministry in holding infants. And when we went through the orientation, they said, hey, listen, you're, you're in charge of the spiritual direction, even of infants, as soon as they come out the womb. And we thought, well, what in the world does that mean? I was at a seminary. I was learning words I didn't even understand. I couldn't imagine communicating to someone that can't understand any of my words. And they said, well, listen, even children, infants that come in, they are going to receive an individual prayer over them by a volunteer. Every single child that gets held will receive a prayer on someone else, by someone else, for their soul, for their salvation, so they can connect to Jesus Christ. I said, that's fantastic. And they said, you'll also bless them. And I said, come again? What do you mean? And they said, you'll, you'll give a blessing. And so, what does, what does that mean? And their response to me, knowing that I was in seminary, said, you, you, are you serious? I was like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I've never blessed someone. How do you, how do, you do that? And so um, they said, well, it's really just a statement of hopeful life for them, that they would follow, that God would move in their heart in such a way. Something like this. May the Lord just bless you with his life. May you be open to him. May your parents live a life where they seek God and you grow up in that household and you love Jesus Christ with all your heart to make a difference in his life. I like that. I was blessing babies. I was, you know, I was, I was on top. I was the number one blesser of babies at that church. I guarantee you there was not a person that touched more heads with a blessing than me. I was just, pat. I'm telling you, it was amazing. It wasn't drums. I was gentle. But it was one of those things where it made such a big difference in our life that when we pray with our children at life, we, or at night, we actually end it with a blessing. We, we gave our own version of the number six passage, right? That blessing there. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. May you be filled with the Holy Spirit. May you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. We say that over our kids every single night individually at the end of our prayer. We think it's important. And I want to say that over you. I want you to receive that blessing in your life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May you be filled with the Holy Spirit. May you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that you may make a difference in this world and many may come to know him through you. I want you to receive that. How do you overcome fear? It's all centered on God. As you read through this, it says, whom shall I fear? The answer to that, the only one you could possibly fear is the Lord. So may you have a faithful life with him. And so, wake up every day affirming your faith in the Lord. Worship him with your life. 
Seek him in prayer and devotion and presence. And may God bless that in your life. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this day. We're grateful for what you've given us through your word. Lord, bless us all as we leave here today that we would follow you faithfully, that we would seek you with our lives, that we would love you for what you've so graciously given us. Let us not turn to our own desires, but to turn to your desires and protect us from our own and protect us from our enemies as well so that we can be a representative of your light, your salvation, your stronghold. It's by your son's name we pray, amen.